The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, I've been exploring over the last few weeks the uh, the topic of the sense of self and how that is the the kind of solidity that we have around a sense of self the the idea that I am I am a me is a form of delusion it's a it's a misunderstanding of our experience basically I'm going to continue that um, that discussion today um, just a little bit of a Connected, just to keep it connected to the flow of the last, the last few weeks. The sense of self, and we all we all have a sense that I am. It, it's a, it's almost a, um, it's such a, a kind of intuitive feeling that we don't think of questioning. It's a, it's a, a sense. It's a. It, it feels so obvious that I am, and and I think part of that is that we see through. It's a lot through memory, a lot through remembering. Like you know, there's a sense of remembering when I was a child, and and you know things that I did as a child, and how those things grew and changed and shaped who I am now. And so there's a there's a sense of some kind of continuity of a me that has been that has been um, in this body perhaps that has been carried along through this life, and that that, that there is that uh, kind of there is something that has been flowing along in this being in this life. There is something that. It's, it's not a thing, though. So the word something is kind of a misnomer. Maybe perhaps there, there's um, a process that's flowing along in this being. A process that is shaped, a process that is changing, a process that is never the same in any two moments. And what we do is we attribute a kind of a solidity or a a stableness, a a sense of I have been here, I am here, and I will be here. So we we, we attribute a kind of a stability to that. But that's that's a, what is, uh, that's a misperception, it's a misunderstanding of that flow of experience. But it's a natural kind of misunderstanding. I've been using the analogy of a river in the past few weeks of um, to to kind of give the analogy for the sense of self, if we try to pin down what a river is, you know, a river, we know we all know what a river is. We can talk about it conventionally. We can we can go to a river. We know where rivers are. We know what they're like. You know, probably when I mention a river, some image pops up in your mind of a river, and usually that image consists of water flowing in. Um, some channel. But if we start looking at and penetrating, begin to explore more deeply, what is a river? You know, what, what, what is a river? 
Is there anything, anything stable that that river is? The water that's flowing through the river. That's certainly a major component of river, is the water. But the water that's actually there is never the same. It, it continually flows on. In, in any moment, there's no, the, the water that's, that's right here is not the same water. And we can't just take a bucket of water and say, this is the river, that doesn't make any sense either. So the, the river isn't the water, per se. And there, maybe the river is the, the, the channel in which the water is flowing. That's a little more stable, perhaps. It's a little more sense of something that's there. Because the, the water height comes and goes, but the, the channel seems to be more, more stable. And yet even that changes. It's not, it's not permanent, it's not solid. You know, as the water flows, it's carrying some of that channel downstream with it in little bits. Often it's not so obvious that it's carrying little bits of the, of the channel itself downstream. And then there are times when there's something like a flood or a major uh, change, perhaps there could be an earthquake or something that would really alter the landscape, that would dramatically change the course of that river. And so even the channel in which the river flows is not the river. And so what is the river? There's something conventionally that we call river. It's not that it's not that there's n- it's not there's not something there. It's not that it, it that that it's uh, a figment of our imagination. It's not completely nothing. But it's not perhaps the thing that we might take it to be. We can't really say this is the river. The river is more of a process, more of a changing conditions, changing set of conditions. Well, the sense of self is kind of like that. What we call self is a process. It's a changing set of conditions. You know, if we think about our bodies, for instance, which often we think of as a sense of self, we think of our bodies, you know, that this body came into being as something like this big, it's, you know, it's a tiny little package. Where's that? And there's some, perhaps, cells that are the same in the brain, I understand. But largely, even the cells of that body, much like the channel of that river, have been replaced, have been shifted, have been changed. All of the cells of our bones, all of the cells of our skin of our organs have been replaced and so you know even that there's not that much continuity in our bodies but it's there's a process there's something that is a flow something that we would conventionally think of as i or me but but what we do basically is we misattribute a solidity or a stability to that process and call that concept or that idea, me, I, mine. One of the, um, the big areas I think that we tend to um, identify um, 
So the, the sense of self, we, we, I think we all have a kind of an overarching sense of self that may be just like this me that's been going through life from the beginning. And then we also have senses of self that uh, feel like they're fairly stable, like our personalities are shaped. I'm the kind of person who is X. I'm, I'm, um, you know, I'm like this. And we all, I think, have some particular identities or flavors of mm, who we are, what we're capable of, that, we, that, that seem to be fairly stable. So for myself, for instance, one of the um, patterns that I thought of as very stable was being miserable. You know, that, that, that pattern for myself was there a lot. And this is, I think, one of, the, one of the ways that we attribute a solidity to something. When it comes up a lot, we think it's, well, at least my, in my mind, it's like, it's always there in some way. You know, it's like, if it's not actively present, it's like it's, like it's hiding underneath somewhere. It's just waiting to be uncovered. And there is a way in which that might that there, that that might be kind of happening, but not not that the the pattern itself is kind of it's like I had this idea of a reservoir of miserableness that was in my being that just needed the smallest little like you know rip in the cloth for it to to explode out. So it's kind of like, you know, lava or something. And it just, it took a little bit for it to kind of overflow. Um, What there, there does seem to be the, the, the Buddha in his understanding of these kind of patterns that happen for us, these familiar patterns. He speaks of tendencies of mind that we have kind of, uh, our minds have been shaped through conditioning to kind of incline in a particular way. And so he says, whatever one frequently ponders, that becomes the inclination of the mind. And so if we frequently ponder uh, thoughts of miserableness, then thoughts of miserableness will tend to come up more. It's like, that's what, that's what sh- our mind is shaping with it's not that the miserableness is always there, but it has a tendency to arise. There's a, an understanding about this that I like that, that helped me to think about this, um, the way in which there can be an underlying tendency, but not that pool of lava or that pool of miserableness. And that's a, 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 from, from neuroscience, there's the understanding of kind of um, patterns of, so as, we, as our minds are shaped by whatever we frequently ponder, it's like what happens in our brains is like when we frequently practice or when we frequently engage in a particular pattern, me, miserableness, frequently engage in a pattern like that, it, um, it's like our neurons 
say, wow, that pattern must be important. Let's shore that one up. Let's add more neurons to that. So it's, uh, you know, it's a perfectly um, neutral tendency in our minds to shore up what is frequently engaged with. And so there is this, you know, so miserableness comes up. It's like, oh, miserableness comes up again. Oh, that one's important. More, more, more. And until it gets to the point where there's so many connections to that network that it's almost like any thought can find its way through the network to that pattern. So there's a, there's a kind of a tendency because of that shaping of the network for the mind to head there. So you know, not only when we practice it, does it, or when we cultivate it, or when we incline our minds to, to go in a particular direction, does it go there, but, but then the, the pattern itself begins to, it like begins to have some kind of magnet, magnetic pull to us because there's so many connections there. Now, the, the, um, the thing that I learned about this neural network that surprised me um, and gave me this sense of, oh, it's not that that pattern is kind of like that reservoir of miserableness, um, is that apparently when that pattern is not engaged with, so this pattern of miserableness, when it's not engaged with either through um, being aware of it, and this, is, this for me took some, took some time to actually gain some confidence with, that if I'm aware of a pattern such as being miserable, it's different than fueling that pattern. And so something about the awareness, and I don't know how this works in the brain, but it does seem to me um, that something about that awareness does not add to that network. In fact, it allows, it allows it to begin to weaken. And so if we just kind of recognize, okay, this is the experience of miserableness arising, as opposed to, oh, I'm miserable. I've always been miserable. I'm never going to not be miserable. Yeah, I remember that thing when I was miserable. And this thing in the future, yeah, I'm going to be miserable about that too. As, lo- as long as we're not engaging in kind of cementing the pattern, it allows there to be a different a different process to begin to unfold. And another thing that, um, another way to not engage with it is to just not go there. So to, you know, shift the attention. Oh, there's miserableness. Not to try repressing it. Repressing it does not seem to work. But if we truly acknowledge it, okay, here's miserableness, and I'm going to put my attention on something else. Just redirecting then what happens in that neural network, what I understand, is that as that pattern is not engaged with, those same neurons that said, oh, this must be important, begin to realize, you know, kind of again, it's just the natural way that our brains work. This one's not being used so much. Other things seem to be more important. And so those, those kind of shoring up of that pattern begins to weaken. I had an experience of something along these lines where I I was exploring a pattern of anger around a particular person. It was a particular anger. 
Um, and at some point I decided to, uh, and, and it did seem like there were many, many like avenues into this particular pattern of anger. Particul- any, any thought, many thoughts could find their way into that pattern. And so I began exploring the pattern of anger and at some point realized there were so many ways in that even being mindful of the pattern seemed to be um, not strong enough to stay disengaged. I would explore being mindful and find myself just swept away in the pattern. And so I began exploring this not now approach. So, okay, not now. I'm going to redirect my attention. It was like I would say something to this anger, something like, I see you. You can take a walk with me, but I'm going to put my attention on my feet while we take this walk. So that, that I didn't kind of repress it, but I also just didn't give it any attention. And over the course of many months of engaging in that way with that pattern, that um, I began noticing over time that the pattern arose less and less often. And then one day I noticed that I hadn't had that pattern in a very long time. And even remembering having that thought, that person that I was angry with, I haven't been angry at them in a long time, even having that thought, I could not find, or it was like I couldn't even call up that anger anymore. It was gone. And it has remained gone. It disappeared when I wasn't looking. It, it seemed to have that, it seemed to me, it seemed to be that kind of way of which I just disengaged from the pattern. And the, 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 the mind weakened that pattern through its natural functioning. Not engaged with. This one is less important. So these kinds of, of identities... You know, so, so something that we take to be very solid or stable, a pattern of, of anger or, or pattern of, of um, um, miserableness, um, we can start to see that they are not permanent. That they are not this like reservoir of something resting, hiding underneath, just waiting to erupt. So this is, these are ways that we tend to identify. I am angry or I am miserable. And I'm a miserable person even. And so um, what's useful is rather than to apply a sense of, oh, I'm miserable and well, this is not self so I shouldn't feel that way. It's more useful to begin to explore where do we identify? Where do we create a sense of self? Where, wh- how do these patterns work? So as I said with the pattern ar- around anger, as I explored that pattern through setting it aside, you know, actually I, each time I would notice it, I'd, be, I'd, say, I'd recognize it, I'd say, I see you and I'm going to put my attention there. Take my attention off the anger. So exploring that pattern by setting it aside, essentially. 
created the conditions for something different to happen. So the, one of the most powerful ways to begin to explore the process that we call self and to begin to um, weaken our belief that it is a thing, to begin to recognize that it's a conditioned phenomenon, is to begin to explore it. Not to try to apply the teaching of not-self. Well, I shouldn't feel miserable because that's not really a self. Or, you know, it's, we, I, we do all kinds of weird things with this teaching of not-self, actually. Sometimes I, I, I definitely have seen this kind of proclivity in my own mind. That, oh, if, you know, if there's no self, then, um, you know, this, this shouldn't impact me the way it does. Well, like, it is impacting us. So be curious about what the sense of self is. And often, where we most identify is where we most suffer. In fact, the Buddha taught that this, what we call selfing, this process that we call selfing, we identify with, and the process of the creation of suffering are the very same process. And so, when we are... Um, noticing suffering, there's some kind of sense of self involved in that suffering. If we notice a sense of self, a strong sense of self, there will be some suffering associated with that sense of self. Whether it's obvious or not, there will be. And so an exploration of, of sense of self, what do you take to be me or I or mine? And so um, last week I mentioned a pattern for myself, a particularly strong pattern around self-hatred. Um, and um, uh, one, of your, one of the group asked if I would talk about how I worked with that pattern. And so that's what I'd like to do for the rest of the time today, to really go into some detail about how I worked with a particular very strong pattern, very strongly identified pattern, and began to see how things might shift and change around that pattern. So the pattern was one of, is one, was one of self-hatred, and I would say at this point, um, wow, it's way different than it used to be. Um, that rut in the mind of the, the, the kind of the patterning around self-hatred uh, used to be really shored up. It felt like a very deep rut with many threads into that rut. And uh, when, uh, you know, any time, it was so deep, it's kind of like if we have an image of a ball dropping into a rut and then rolling around in a rut. It's like it was so deep, it was very hard for that ball to get out of that rut. And at this point, I would say that there's still some, some tendency towards the pattern of self-hatred. But the rut has gone from being a deep cavern to being just a very minor impression. Very easy for that ball to roll in and out of that pattern. So 
how did this happen? How did I explore this? And what, what happened around this? And what I'll do as I do this is to try to describe and point to some of the tools that were useful in this process. Whatever strong, particularly identified patterns you have, this story, if, even if you have a pattern of self-hatred, this story may not speak to your pattern directly. But some of the tools, some of the ways that I engaged, and in particular I would say the application of patience and resolve, both of those two, um, because this was a long process. This probably was a couple of years of exploration. Um, and, you know, both in daily life, on retreat, the whole uh, the process, um, exploring various aspects of it. And the resolve to keep going, to, to, to recognize this is helpful, this is useful. And I'd had, so this is probably the first thing, resolve to, to keep going. Um, and as we begin to understand that the practice has some power, that exploring our difficult mind states. And so, you know, I had explored and seen benefits, like with that particular pattern of anger and with noticing how anger can just vanish when, when it's seen very clearly. You know, I had seen the value of this practice. And so I knew that it could be transformative. But this particular pattern was so deeply ingrained in the mind that it, it, it was much more scary to work with. You know, beginning to be with self-hatred. And actually, this was, the, this was the very first thing, was that I discovered it. When, when I was um, on some of my early retreats, actually, uh, I began noticing that, you know, if I didn't do things in the way I thought I should do them, or the teachers gave some instruction and I discovered, well, I couldn't do that part, then I would just beat myself up. I told myself I was a failure. I told myself I was no good. And I was shocked by the harshness of that voice. I hadn't really been conscious of that inner voice of self-hatred until I started meditating. I knew I was miserable before, (laughs) before the practice. I knew life was hard, um, but I didn't know that a big piece of that was this inner voice. Um, that there was a voice inside of me telling me, you're no good, you're a failure, you're, you're bad, you're wrong. So just seeing that, it was, it was a shock. That was the first step I now look back and recognize. You have to know it's there in order to begin to explore it. At first, it was... It was uh, I thought, I basically, I began to see and I began to recognize that I had a kind of a, 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 a two-sided pattern 
in my mind around um, identity, around being bad or wrong or a failure. And that was, I also had another identity that I also began to hear talking in my head. You can do this. You're good at this. In fact, you're probably the best at this. And so that, that was how I kind of had coached myself through my life, was by telling myself I was okay. That part had kind of come above the surface so that I, 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 could, you know, I could see that a little bit. It's like, yeah, I can do this. And particularly around being um, uh, successful in worldly activities, like having a job and earning money, that kind of thing, that, that there was a kind of a sense of I could do that. And what happened as I began practicing is this, this pattern around, I can do this, I can't do this. You're a success, you're a failure, you're good, you're bad, began to become a piece of the, the mind in doing the practice. You can do this practice, you're good at this. In fact, you're probably the best meditator in the room. And then something would happen where I would discover I can't be mindful at all. It's like, I I mean, how can I be mindful? And then my mind would move to, you're a failure. You can't do this. This is proof that you are not a success. And so I began to see this kind of ping-ponging between these two identities. And again, the recognition of these two identities was, was a first step or maybe a second step here, you know, to see that this, this you're a failure identity was kind of um, uh, counterbalanced in a way by this you're a success identity. And at first when I began to see that, my mind was kind of thinking, well, this, this is what I'm supposed to feel like. I'm supposed to feel like I am a success. So what I need to do is get rid of this one, I'm a failure, and shore the success up. That doesn't work very well. Because being a success, at least in my own mind, meant never failing. And there's no way to control our experience such that we would never fail. And so the, 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 the recognition, I began to realize that what I, the, my beliefs around the success side were a setup for the spiraling into the failure, the self-hatred, the I'm no good. And so this was one of my first lessons around this. First, I was recognizing, I was, I was clearly recognizing the you're no good mind states. I was trying to notice that. So that was, that was trying to be mindful of that pattern of feeling like a failure, feeling that sense of self-hatred. But what I discovered was equally important was being mindful of that pattern. You can do this. You're good at this. And so that was one of my early practices around this, is beginning to recognize these kind of, that both identities were being clung to. And that the clinging to the success identity was a direct cause for the spiraling into the self-hatred. 
So that was, that was scary to see that. To see that I couldn't just chop off the self-hatred and be left with success. And, you know, it, that basically a whole different approach had to be worked with. And so I just began exploring this and I began recognizing, so this pattern of recognizing, oh, you're succeeding, you're doing this well. As I began to just notice, oh yeah, that's just thoughts, that's just a pattern. What I began to recognize is there was a corresponding weakening of the spiraling into the self-hatred. So that was the first exploration around self-hatred. It was recognizing that there was a kind of a counterbalance identity and realizing that that, um, it was just as important, almost more important, to recognize the flip identity, the flip side identity, to be aware of that too. So that was, that was one piece. So, you know, that, that sometimes, sometimes this happens, that if we have a strong kind of identity on one side, it, it might be, just check and see, it might be balanced on another side. By, by something else. And, and, and again, it's not that we're trying to get rid of either one. We're, what, what my understanding of this is that the practice of becoming aware of, in this case, both of these identities began to have a transformative effect that allowed for something completely different to happen. Something more along the lines of oh, this is the experience of appreciating that this being can accomplish something. Oh, this is the experience of recognizing this being can't always accomplish things. Much more neutral kind of uh, relationship to what I traditionally would have applied the label of success or failure. So that was one piece, is, is looking at these, this flip identity. And then um, the next piece, um, the exploration, was kind of more directly uh, exploring. On, on one, per- one retreat in particular... Um, the pattern of self-hatred was very strong. It kept coming up. Um, it, it, it seemed to be that, that it, it was like, maybe I had, I don't know, you know, sometimes we can create theories, but maybe there'd been enough exploration that there was enough room for the pattern and confidence that, that there could be a, an ability to work with it. I would like to encourage, one thing I, I do want to encourage with particularly strong patterns, with particularly... Uh, sticky patterns, respect whether there is an ability to meet it. You know, there can be times when there, there's, there's like a sense of, so noticing a relationship to the pattern. It may be that the, the idea of attending to a particularly strong pattern brings up a sense of resistance or fear or a sense of, yeah, I don't want to go there. Rather than pushing yourself to be with that, just kind of respect that. It's like, okay, well, okay, I'll just hang out on the edges and I'll know that there's resistance to meeting that right now. So that, so that there's not a kind of a forcing through some idea of needing to get in the middle, of needing to dig things out and, and unwind it. 
So as attending to patterns, you uh, particularly very sticky patterns, and self-hatred, I think, is one of those. You know, it, it, it tends to be a kind of a pattern that um, feels so self-annihilating. It just, it, it feels so hard to be with because it's, it's like the, yeah, it just feels like a, a self-annihilation. So to recognize when it's possible to be with it with some kind of ability of balance of mind and when it's not. So I talked earlier about setting aside the anger and saying, not now. There, there, there were times in working with self-hatred that I had to do that too. It's like, okay, yep, I see you, and not now. Just, just setting it aside. On this particular retreat, the capacity was stronger for being able to meet the experience of self-hatred. It came up a lot. One of the things I've particularly noticed on this particular retreat is that sometimes it was there and sometimes it wasn't there. This, was, this is a particularly powerful tool also, is recognizing the absence of a pattern, especially one that we strongly identify with. As I began to recognize it's not always there and understanding that it's not that it's like some pool of self-hatred that's just waiting underneath to explode, but it's just not there in that moment. It's not arising. It's not happening. That as I began to see that, I could recognize, okay, yeah, it's not there. It's not something that's, that's always here. It comes and goes. So this began to, to key me into the impermanence of this pattern, the impermanence of the self-hatred. This is an important understanding around our strong identities. It begins to kind of poke holes in our belief that it is stable, that it is solid, that it is always there. And so this is an important tool, is noticing when it's there, and more important, noticing when it's not there. So this was a big piece of the exploration, is noticing that it came and went. There was, I will have to admit, a feeling of dread when I felt the self-hatred arising. It's like, oh no, I'm going to have to be with this again. But at the same time, I could recognize that and, and there was enough capacity to meet it at times. And so I learned a number of things along the way. One of the things I learned, so... Um, Again, through just being willing to be there with it. So one of the things I learned was I had some idea in my mind about the cause or why this pattern had become so predominant in my life. And it had to do with a particular relationship and um, a pattern uh, in, my, in my life. And... Um, I could see, I could see that there was, a, I mean, I, 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 I could see that I had a belief or a kind of an intellectual understanding about that. Like, yeah, well, that's what happened and it would make sense that this would be the pattern that evolved from that. And, and I, had, I had uncovered that through some, some, um, some therapy, some talk therapy. And so there was the idea of, of that 
kind of conditioned nature of this pattern of self-hatred. But it didn't really impact that the self-hatred kept coming up. And at some point on the, um, on the retreat, I, so I, I knew, I had this idea, but I didn't have a visceral or sense of how it actually connected. So there was the idea, the concept, but not a direct understanding of how, it, how this pattern had actually kind of been built. And so at some point on this retreat, through being willing to hang out with what was happening in my mind, so watching what was going on, at some point, it's like I could see thoughts related to this pattern of self-hatred. And there was a moment where I just had a direct kind of, a deeper understanding of, oh, this is how it got formed. This is how it's connected to that relationship. And through that, seeing not only the conditioning in my life that led to that, but the conditioning in other people's lives that led to how they were. It's like this like web of conditioning arose in my mind. It's like, oh my gosh, no wonder, no wonder this being is experiencing that. And so the willingness to meet this pattern led to an, a deeper understanding of the conditioned nature, not just an idea, not just a concept, but a kind of a more direct understanding, oh, this is conditioned. That direct understanding led to a lot of compassion, both for myself and for the other people in, in my life. It, it created a lot of ease in my heart in that moment, And actually, it was such a powerful recognition that I thought that I had gotten rid of the pattern. I thought I had understood it thoroughly enough that it would never happen again. And I was shocked. It did go away for, I don't know, a few days, maybe. (laughs) I was shocked when it came back. (laughs) You know, it's like, wow, what good was that insight? So, so the pattern itself, I recognized at a deeper level than a, just a thought or just a deeper level than, than an idea that it was conditioned. And so the mindfulness let me see into that deeper level of conditioning. Let me have some sense of compassion. I would call this kind of a psychological insight, an insight into the conditioning of me as a human being through my life, through my particu- particularities of my life. And so there was a psychological insight that happened. But it, it didn't seem to um, kind of keep the pattern from reemerging. And, and just as strongly, actually. It was, it was just as hard to meet. Well, not quite just as hard. Because what I would say that that psycho- psychological insight did was to um, have me be less afraid to look at the pattern. Because there was, it was a, there was a much deeper understanding of, oh, this is, of course, of course this pattern is arising in this being. It's not my fault that self-hatred arises. That was what that psychological insight did. It created the understanding that 
this isn't my fault, this was conditioned. And so it allowed the mind to be much more spacious around being with that pattern. So that, that actually um, let me be kind of more fully with the arising of self-hatred, more clearly with the arising of self-hatred. And there was one sitting, one evening, you know, I, I remember um, leaving the Dharma Hall and walking up the stairs and feeling the pattern of self-hatred arise. Kind of, it felt more like it descended than it arose, but <laughs> it felt, felt it like washing through. And it's like, okay, I'm going to just go back to my room. And I'm just, there was a kind of a sense of the resolve and the patience that came in that. It's like, I'm going to be with this. And sat with the, the experience. And I just was, was just kind of working with being with the moment that I could feel the beginning, you know, putting together of that pattern. I'd feel kind of the coming together or the, the movement towards, like the, the movement in those neurons to head towards that rut. I could, I, could, I could feel that movement. And I would just say, yep, there it is, and it's unpleasant. Contact unpleasant. And I would just notice this. I'd just be recognizing that. And I spent some chunk of time that evening, probably an hour or more, just watching this. And at some point that evening watching that pattern the 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 arising of the uh kind of the movement towards oh this is you know the self-hatred beginning to put itself together that movement was so clearly seen that the mind recognized this is just the mind putting this thing together in this moment right now i'm see that the mind was seeing Self-hatred doesn't exist to be created and recognize that that creation of the self-hatred was done by the mind. That it was completely in this moment arising based on a thought and a reaction to that thought. And it, in that seeing of this is a thought that was a deeper level of understanding than the con- you know, conditioned nature. That This is just arising right now. The seeing of that, in that split second of seeing that, the self-hatred vanished and was replaced by a sense of bliss. There was a little bit of attachment to that bliss in that there was the thought... Ah, never again will I feel self-hatred. And then remembering my previous experience with that, I thought, no, this is just this insight right now. In this moment, the mind understands. This is just a thought. And in that moment, the, the kind of the bliss chilled, and I just, it was just like sitting in the understanding of self-hatred is a creation of the mind. That moment turned out to be way more powerful than I gave it credit for. Or maybe almost as powerful as I first gave it credit for, but not that powerful. But it, it, it was a couple of years before I experienced something like self-hatred again. And then only in very deep retreat 
did I see? Like there's still, it's like, it was like that moment of seeing so clearly, this is just a conditioned phenomenon. The mind creates this in a moment. What I understand now that that did is it had uprooted the belief in those thoughts. That, that the whole machine of the self-hatred had been not only the thoughts arising, but believing them. And thoughts and beliefs, as I understood in that moment, I can articulate now, I don't know that I could articulate it then, the thought is one thing. And then there's a process of believing that kind of picks it up and says, yep, that's true, yep, that's true, yep, that's true, yep, that's true. And it's the believing that's the kind of, that's where the identity is created. That's where it gets solid. And so that seeing into the, that moment allowed that belief to be undermined. And so the thoughts, it seems like they're still thoughts. These thoughts of, you're no good, you're a failure. I see them every now and then. It's like, huh, wow, that thought's still there. But it's not believed. And so that's when I said that the rut went from this deep rut to a kind of a, 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 a small depression, a, a small impression. That's my understanding, is that it's the belief that, that was what was making it a deep rut. And without the belief, those thoughts can arise and they aren't attached to. I still feel like it's important to recognize those beliefs because, you know, if they're still there, they're still, it's like a big tree has been uprooted, but, and lots of the roots have gone with it, but there's still some filaments. I take those thoughts to still be filaments. And I think it's important to keep an eye on those because you, who knows, another tree could grow from those filaments. So it's no longer as painful. And in some ways it might be easy to ignore because it's, it's not such a painful pattern anymore. So, so, you know, I hope this has been useful for you to, to hear this story. Partly, um, mostly what I didn't like to encourage is what I said at first, patience and resolve. That maybe hearing this story will give you some sense that it's possible that this kind of deep pattern can be worked with in the practice. It takes patience, it takes wisdom, it takes the willingness to say, yeah, not now, not, yeah, right now is not the time. Oh, right now is the time to know for ourselves what is appropriate for investigating these very deeply held identities, these deep, deep senses of self. But it is possible to radically transform even very deep patterns in this way. And it's time to stop. So, thank you.